Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. John chapter number 2, if you have your Bibles open there, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll get into the message this morning. John chapter number 2, we're making our way through the series uh, that I've entitled More Like Jesus. As you can see, there's an inspiration here for that title of the sermon series, but it ties very closely with a theme verse for our church. The theme verse for our church this year is Romans chapter 8, verse number 28, all things work together. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. So how do we know that all things can work together for good? If we know and consider and plan and prepare that these things will mold us more to be like Jesus Christ. So that's the goal. So during this series, we're kind of jumping around from book to book in the Gospels, but the plan and the goal is to see, well, if God wants us to be more like Jesus Christ, what was Jesus Christ like? So let's take a look. John chapter number two, we're going to take another, a look at another event here in verse number 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, take these things out of here. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we come before you desiring to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And no matter what comes our way, we know that if we continue to love you and continue to be called according to your purpose, that you can make all things work together for good. And we pray that it will be so for us here. We pray that if there's somebody here today that is not saved, that is not trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, to be their savior, and they are not yet born again into the family of God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work on their hearts so that they might call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. John chapter number two, we read in verse number 12, but just to back it up a couple of verses going back to the beginning of the chapter, John chapter number two begins with the very first miracle of Jesus Christ. He went to Cana. There was a wedding there in Cana. The city of Cana was close to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And so he might've known somebody there. His mother was invited to this wedding. And so his mother went there, Mary went there and Mary invited Jesus and the family. So they all went over there. So Jesus went there, Mary went there, his brothers went there and Jesus' disciples also went to this wedding at Cana. So you have this big group of people there at the wedding. They run out of wine. They run out of something to drink. And God, Jesus, miraculously changes the water to wine. That's the very first miracle of Jesus Christ. We see that in the beginning of John chapter number 2. He goes to Capernaum for a couple of days. And after a couple of days, he goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover, just like he did every other year. And he goes down to the Passover. He goes down into the temple area. And what does he find there? But he finds all of these animals, 
all of these owners of these animals, selling these animals, money changers, all of these things there in the temple area. And Jesus, what he does is he grabs a couple of pieces of cord, kind of twists them all together, makes a whip, and he casts out everybody out of the temple area, pushes everybody out. All the animals, all the marketplace people selling their wares, uh, selling the animals, the money changers, overthrows the table, pushes all of this thing out, everything. And the Bible there says in verse number 17, the very end of the verse, and his disciples remember that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So this morning, we're going to take a look at how if we're to be more like Jesus Christ, we're going to take a look at the passion of Jesus Christ. Becoming more like Jesus means becoming more and more like Jesus in terms of his passion. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the passion of Jesus Christ, how he was passionately committed, and in what way he was passionate. So let's take a look at a couple of traits of the passion of Jesus Christ here this morning. First of all, we see that Jesus was passionately scriptural. He was passionately scriptural. So you cannot have your passion lead you into sin. Amen? That makes sense. Your passion must reside within the laws of God. Passion does not trump obedience. Passion is not more important than obedience to the word of God. So Jesus is going to the Passover again, and I've mentioned before, I know we had some trouble with the live stream in weeks past, so maybe, I, I, I don't know if you, you caught this, but so Jesus and, 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 uh, and, and Mary and the family, they would go down to Jerusalem for the Passover every single year. They would go down every single year from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. They would be there for the Passover and be there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So just to give you a little bit of a context of what exactly that would entail, the journey, of course, was done back when Jesus was around here on earth. There were no cars. There's no paid road. You know, it's, it's not an easy travel trip. Even though it might have been only about 80 miles or so, uh, you're not taking a train. You're walking. At best, you might be on an animal, but you're going in a caravan, so everybody's kind of going along with the slowest traveler. So it would have taken about three to four days in order to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So just to give you a little frame of context, before I moved here, I was living in New Jersey. And if you travel from New Jersey to here, if you drive, it takes you about 40 hours drive. Ten hours a day, it'll take you about four days to drive from New Jersey to Los Angeles. So we took that trip. We had a few extra things along the way. In Kentucky, there's a kind of life-size replica of Noah's Ark. And uh, we don't know if exactly it looked like that, but it was, it was, uh, it was there. And so we we're like, we got to go see this thing. And so we went over there. We walked through the whole thing. It was great. So we did a couple of other things. It took us a little bit more than four days. But in general, it'll take you about four days to drive from here to New Jersey. So it would be the equivalent for Jesus to go to Passover every year for him to drive from Los Angeles to New Jersey in order to partake of the Passover, and then for the next seven days after that, partake of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then drive four days back. So imagine taking that journey every single year. Every single year, you drive all the way over to New Jersey, you're there for eight days, and then you drive all the way back. It's not a small journey. It would have been a large undertaking. But here we see Jesus again going to the Passover. And you could imagine that everybody would have had this thought of, we've done this every single year. 
every year we drive to New Jersey, every year we go to this Passover, every year we go to the feast, and every year we have to drive back. Couldn't we skip one of these years? Right? Can we not drive? You can imagine having a bunch of kids with you. Dad or mom, do we have to go again? Are we there yet? Imagine four days of, are we there yet? And then four days back, are we there yet? I mean, you can imagine people thinking, all right, maybe one year we don't have to go. But here we see Jesus. He's about 30 years of age, and he goes again, faithfully, every year, going to Jerusalem to partake in the Passover. You see that Jesus made sure in order to follow the scriptures, in order to be there when he was called to be there, as it was according to the law. Meaning this, passion is not reckless. Passion is not uncontrolled. Passion lives within the guidelines that are given to us in the Bible. Amen? Amen. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, right now is uh, football season, and uh, every, you know, all year long, it's some season of some sport. And no matter what sport it is that you play, though, there are lines somewhere on the field. On the football field, there are lines. On the basketball court, there are lines. If you play tennis, there are lines. Now, you can hit it as hard as you can, but if it doesn't land within the lines, it doesn't count. You could swing that bat and smash it, but if it lands outside of the lines, it doesn't count. It's out of bounds. Now you hit it really hard. That's great, but you don't get any runs for hitting it outside the lines. So it, within sports, we say, all right, we want you to give it your all. Hit it as hard as you can. Run as fast as you can, but don't go outside the lines. Don't go outside the lines. You stay within the lines. That makes sense. Everybody understands that. That's I, what I believe that God desires for us in our passion as well. God wants us, run as hard as you can. Swing that bat as hard as you can. Do all that you can within the lines, within the instruction of the Bible, within the guidelines that God has given to us. So we see, first of all, Jesus was passionately scriptural. We see also that Jesus was passionately striving. In verse number 14, we continue on. Verse number 14 says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. So you have Jesus coming to the Passover, Coming to Passover, he goes to the temple area. So there's an inner court and an outer court. In this outer court area, you'd have people that were able to kind of come. And so you'd have people that were there. And there was an opportunity that was obvious. So the high priest there at that time was Annas. And Annas allowed this uh, 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 situation to arise and obviously would have been profiting from this situation of, okay, so if you come to the temple area, you're supposed to, if you have a sacrifice, you've got to make a sacrifice, right? You bring an animal. The thing is, it's the priests that approve of the animal, okay? Just like if you were to bring, you know, the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb had to be particular, had to be a, a male lamb, no blemish. So if you had a Passover lamb that had blemishes, that lamb would be disqualified. 
So if you brought a lamb like that, or you, you know, for a sacrifice in general, and the priest disqualified it, you don't have an offering. You don't have a sacrifice. But you know conveniently, oh, I'm really sorry, your animal is not qualified. It's not up to the standard of what God deems acceptable for a sacrifice. But conveniently, I have a friend over here willing to sell you an animal that just so happens to meet all of the qualifications. And if you would buy that animal, then you would be able to have your sacrifice. Now, as you could imagine, there's a little bit of an upcharge there if you're going to buy this animal, right? <laughs> you could imagine that. You could imagine that there's a little bit of a profit that's taking place. And you could imagine that the high priest would also say, all right, you know, you guys, if you want to come in here and you want to sell, that's great or whatever. But come on, you got you to give me a little bit of something here. And so the high priest and everybody would look the other way because they would be able to profit a little bit. These guys have an obvious market that's coming to them. They have to make sacrifices, and they're kind of in collusion with the priests in order to... You could see all of the corruption that's going on. If it weren't bad enough, remember, this is the days of the Roman Empire, and so you have different kind of currencies. You have the Roman currency, but when you come to the temple area, you are not allowed to use that currency. You've got to change it over to the currency that they use, which, of course, means, oh, hey, just so conveniently, we got somebody who's willing to sell you the currency that you need in order to buy the animals, uh, in order to have the sacrifice. So <clears throat> I was reading that, um, that these uh, uh, upcharges were not insignificant, that having the money converted would have a 25% fee tacked on to whatever exchange would be there. Not only that, some of these animals would, be, would cost about 10 times what an animal would normally cost. And you could understand why they would feel like they would be allowed to do that because if you brought an animal and it were disqualified, disqualified, but you need a sacrifice, you're not traveling all over the city or going to the countryside to try to find one. You're like, well, I mean, I'm here. Where am I going to get another animal? I may as well just buy this one. I know it's ridiculously overcharged, but what are you supposed to do? And so they would charge up to 10 times for this animal more on top of a 25% exchange fee. They're making out really good, right? They're making out really good. The problem is God's not happy with that, right? God's not happy with that. God doesn't want his system, this sacrifice, to be an opportunity for these people to greedily profit. That's not what God wants. That's not what God desires. And of course, Jesus, being God, comes and he sees this and he says, this is not right. How many of you have ever seen something that says, this is not right? And how many of us have said, this is not right? And we kept it in our head. <laughs> or maybe afterwards we told somebody, hey, this is, this is not right. Now, sometimes there's a place for us to get involved. Sometimes it's not a place for us to get involved. I understand those things. But when it comes to the things of God, passion moves us to action. Passion will move us to action. Passion will move us to be involved. Passion is not something that you just feel on the inside. Real passion, biblical passion, moves us to do something. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did not just have a zeal that uh, resided within his heart. That thing that was in his heart moved him to action. And God calls his people to move to action as well. Just to take a couple of the calls to action that God gives in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 12, we are called to fight. Fight the good fight of faith. 
We are to fight for the faith. We are to fight for what God has given to us. We are called to run. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Hey, let's continue on this road that God has called for us to be on. We are called to contend. We are called to contend. Jude, verse number three, it is needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So God has called us to action to be passionate about these things that are important. The faith is important. God's calling is important. The church is important. So God has called us to action. So we see the passion of Jesus Christ lived within the lines of the scriptures. We see that the passion of Jesus Christ moved into action. We also see that Jesus was passionately, I'm going to use the word steering. In verse number 16, it says, and said unto them, Jesus said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So his priority was on the Lord, and his priority was on the things of the Lord. Passion, biblical passion, is guided by us. Okay? Some people say, find your passion. Okay? Oh, I don't know what I'm passionate about. I just got to figure out what I'm passionate about. Okay? And I understand when it comes to your major in college. Oh, maybe you don't know. Do I want to be, you know, a, a mathematician? Do I want to be an English teacher? Do I want to be whatever? Do I want to be a lawyer, doctor? I don't know. You got to maybe try some of these things and find that out. Okay, I understand that. When it comes to the things of God, though, we don't find our passion. We choose them. Now, that sounds a little strange. Choose your passion. Choose what you're passionate about. It sounds like a parent telling a child to eat his vegetables. Eat your vegetables, eat your green beans, and enjoy them, <laughs> right? You might be able to make your child eat the vegetables, but you can't make them enjoy them. Either they will or they will not. When we say, you choose your passions, it sounds like God's telling us to eat our vegetables. Okay, God, I'm going to eat my vegetables, but you can't make me enjoy it, <laughs> right? That's kind of the way that it sounds. But we need to understand that passion does not control us. We control our passion. We choose our passion. Now, some people say, that doesn't make sense. And some people will also say things like, well, I'm just not excited about the church anymore. Some people will say, well, I'm just not, the things of God don't excite me. When I read the Bible, it's just not as interesting to me anymore. Some people will say that. And some people will say it as if, well, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing we can do. I'm just not excited. But maybe, maybe the excitement will return one day. Maybe it'll return one day. But I want you to see that God wants us to choose our passions. Not only that, God commands us to choose our passions. God commands his people to be passionate about him and the things of God. Did you know that? Did you know that God tells us to be passionate about the things of God? If you don't believe me, let's take a look at the Bible. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Notice the command here. Be zealous. Be passionate. Be zealous. Jesus, remember, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. 
God told this church in Laodicea, be zealous, be passionate. Titus chapter 2, verse number 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto him a peculiar people, zealous of good works. God wants us to be passionate about doing good. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 31. But, the word here is covet, earnestly. It's the same word that is used in the other passages for zealous. Covet earnestly the best gifts. You guys are coveting, you guys are being zealous for good gifts, but I want you to be zealous about the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Romans chapter 12, verse number 11, not slothful in business. Here's the word here, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Okay, so God tells us, you and I, those of us that are saved, God's people, God's children, we are called to choose our passions. So God tells us, be passionate about the things of God, okay? Now, that sounds nice, but how do we put that into practice? How do I just choose to be passionate? I can choose to be more faithful, but how do I choose to be more passionate? That doesn't seem to be something that makes sense. It doesn't sound logical. How do I just be passionate about it? I'm just not passionate. How can I be passionate? Well, these passages, I think you'll find the source of passion. You want to have passion? You've got to find the source of it. The source of our passion is the love of God. That's the source. So we took a look at a couple of verses. We're going to take a look at some surrounding verses to those verses. So I read to you earlier, Romans chapter 12, verse number 11. Back up two verses to verse number nine. Verse number nine there says, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. So the previous two verses are saying we are to love one another. We are to love the people of God. We know that we love him, we love God, because he first loved us. God's love inspires us to love, and we ought to love one another and be fervent in spirit. I read to you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, covet earnestly the best gifts. Verse number one, the very next verse of chapter 13, the very next verse that follows the verse that I read says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So you have this verse that says, covet earnestly the best gifts. Let me tell you what you ought to do. You ought to have the love of God. We read Titus chapter 2 earlier. Verse number 11 brings us back. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So, again, we are to be fervent, be zealous, therefore. We are called to be passionate. How can we be passionate? Let's back it up. Are you saved today? Do you have your sins to be forgiven? Do you know that if you were to die today, you're not going to hell, but you're going to heaven? Don't you think that might inspire you to be a little bit more passionate? Amen? Hey, I got something to be excited about. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm not going. 
I know that my sins are forgiven. That should inspire us and say, you know what? I've got something to be passionate about. I've got somebody to be passionate about. Here is a God who died on the cross to save me from my sins. How can I not but do something for this one who died for me? You can see how the love of God would inspire us to love him in return and be passionate for him and for his things. Not only that, he is coming again. We only got so much time. Let's get out there. Let's do something for God while we have the time. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 19. We read the verse earlier. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So once again, all of these verses, you have this challenge of God. Be zealous. Be passionate. Reject sin, repent of your sin, confess your sin, move on into purity, following God, and be passionate about it. How could we be passionate about the things of God? Don't forget about the love of God. Don't forget about what God has done for you. Don't forget about how God died on the cross. And it is that love, our love for him, that is in, is in return from his love for us, that moves us into action, that moves us into the passion where we will do something about it. You see a couple of times in the New Testament how Jesus was moved with compassion. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. Romans chapter 6, verse number 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So you see Jesus Christ. What moved him to action was, in these cases, his love for those people. So his love moved him to action. And I believe that that is the source as well. We know that God loved us because he loved us, we can love him in return, and that love moves us to passion for the things of God. Amen? Remember our verse theme for the year? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. you got to have that love of God in there. If you have that love of God, because God loved you, I love God. That moves me to be passionate about the things of God and moves me to be more like the Lord. So we see that Jesus was passionately steering. He was guiding his passions. Okay, I can't make you love basketball or baseball or football. I can't make you love sports. I can't make you love coffee. I can't make you love certain things. But God says we ought to choose to be passionate about God and the things of God. Fourthly and lastly, what we see about the passion of Jesus Christ was that he was passionately standing. Or you might use the word staying. The idea was that he was consistent. So Jesus was not just passionate on this one day. It wasn't just like Jesus was just like an average Joe, just not really paying attention or not really, you know, getting passionate or excited about different things. But this one day, he just happened to catch him on the right day, and suddenly his emotions flared up within him, and and he went in there and, you know, cleaned out the temple area, okay? Because passion that comes and goes is not passion. That's emotion. Your emotions will come and go. Sometimes you'll feel excited about something. Sometimes you won't feel excited about something. Sometimes if you're sick, you won't feel like eating. 
You won't feel like working out like you normally do. You won't feel like doing certain things, but then after a little while, your emotion might return. You might be really excited about this thing, and then the next day you're just not as excited, and you have no idea why. You just don't feel a particular way. Who knows why we don't feel a particular way? I don't know. Passion is not emotion. It's not up and down in terms of like, well, I just feel a certain way. Passion is consistent. Passion continues and endures because we do all go through phases. We go through phases in life. We go through phases with like hobbies, right? Sometimes you're really into something and then for whatever reason, you're just not excited about it and you move on to a new hobby. You're really into cooking and then, you know what, I'm just not as excited about it, you know, and you go look for something else to be excited about and you, you move from hobby to hobby to hobby. When it comes to hobbies, that's fine. You move through phases with fashion. You move through phases through maybe your career, all different sorts of things. But biblical passion does not go through phases. Biblical passion is persistent. To see this, we have to go to one of the other Gospels. You could actually pick any of the other Gospels, but we're going to choose Mark. Mark chapter 11, if you want to turn there with me. Mark chapter number 11 is where we'll finish today. So you can turn to Mark chapter number 11, and I want you to turn to verse number 15. Mark chapter 11, verse number 15, we're going to see Jesus. He's in Jerusalem again. He's back in Jerusalem. It sounds like the other time, but this is actually a separate time. So John chapter 2, as I mentioned, was at the very beginning, right? He had the very first miracle, and then he went to Jerusalem for Passover. This time, though, he's at the end of his public ministry. This is a couple years later. Mark chapter 11, verse number 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught them, saying, or, and he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves? This sounds a little bit like the previous one, but it's a different event. This is years later, a few years later. Jesus is back in Jerusalem. He's back for Passover. And what does he find there again? The money changers are back. The people selling the animals they're back. They're selling again. And what does Jesus do? He casts them all out again, overturns the table again. And it adds another detail. Verse number 16, I would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. So this temple area was near to the gate. And so obviously, you know, people are a little lazy. So people look for shortcuts, right? So if you're bringing something into the city through, uh, uh, maybe not the east gate, but one of the gates there, and uh, they're trying to move through the gate, uh, they would be like, you know, here's the temple area. It's kind of in the way. I mean, we should really go around, but, you know, this, this refrigerator is really heavy. Let's just cut through the, you know, this outer court area. Like, you know, there's, there's animals milling around also. People won't really notice us. And so they would just cut through this area. And Jesus said, this isn't right. This is the temple area. This area is, this is reserved for God. This is not just a shortcut 
means to get from one area to another, my house will be called the house of prayer. And you can see that Jesus is like, no, this is not okay. It wasn't okay then, it's not okay now. And he, he pushes them all out again. Passion, as I mentioned, is not emotion because emotions come and go. But with Jesus and his passion for God and the things of God, he did it then and he's doing it now again today. And if it had happened the next year too, you can imagine what Jesus would have done the next year and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that. You can see how Jesus, choosing what he's passionate about, moves him to be persistently passionate about those things. Jesus wasn't a bandwagon Christian, if you call it that way. Oh, when things are going well, he's all on top of it. And then, oh, you know, we're kind of going through a rough patch. You know, I got some other things. I'm really busy with this other thing over here. No, we see that Jesus, of course, being God, chose to be passionate about God and the things of God, about the temple area, about the, 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 the um, corruption that was going on in the area, year after year, every time he saw it, said, this is not right, I'm cleaning house. Biblical passion is faithful. That's why we talk about faithfulness so much. That's why we talk about, hey, let me encourage you, be here. Just continue to choose to be passionate about church. Choose to be passionate about the people of God. Choose to be passionate about his word. Choose to be passionate about his calling of reaching people with the gospel. People might say, well, I'm just not really into it. Well, how can we choose to be passionate about it? Let's back it up a second and say, how's your love for God? How's your love for God? If you say, well, it's, uh, just to be honest, it's struggling. Maybe you just have a conversation, you and God, or you think about this in your heart. How can we move forward in our love for God? Let's go back to the love that God had for us, about how he died on the cross for our sins, about how he's continually faithful for us each and every day so that we might live for him. He's good and gracious to us every single day. That ought to remind us, God still loves me today, and God still loves you today. And let us, that be that motivation for, you know what? I should love God today too. And if I love God today, it's going to move me to be passionate about God and the things of God.